Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. So we've been working through the book of Samuel over the last uh, few weeks, about probably five or six weeks now, with a few um, breakups here here and there. Now, if there's one story that sticks out in your mind that you think perhaps both believers and unbelievers would know about from the Bible, what would you think that might be? You don't have to guess it out, but you're probably... David and Goliath, isn't it? David and Goliath. Both believers and unbelievers somehow know of this story. If you follow any sporting sort of contest, you'll actually get that sort of comment sometime. This is a David and Goliath battle. What are they saying? It's between some really weak team that can't do anything and it's some all-conquering, all-powerful team. So even unbelievers are familiar here with this story of David and Goliath. Well, we're going to see that today in Samuel 16 and 17. But what we often fail to see here, there's a much bigger story going on than just David. That's a big story, no question about that. But there's a bigger story going on around David and Goliath, uh, which God's going to work through that today. And that bigger story is this, that God's glory is on the line here in the story of David and Goliath. There's actually a story about God's glory and him, that is God, being glorified in that uh, so we're going to see that today. Uh, first, let's go to First um, Samuel 17. Uh, Emily, uh, Emily, Amelia read so well for us earlier on uh, to set up that story. Now we're going to go into 17 and pick up from verses 41 through to 54. You can follow along on your devices or your Bibles, or it'll be up there on the screen as well. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Where the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. 
And the men of Israel and Judah arose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered the camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armour in his tent. Uh, Father, we thank you. Thank you now that we can open up your word. We ask and pray, Holy Spirit, please. Uh, would you just awaken to us this big story here? Not the story of David and Goliath, but the big story, Lord. The big story of your glory that is happening in this battle. Uh, we ask for your help now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if anybody's familiar with the Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith, the very first question I ask in that uh, Confession of faith is this, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? The answer to that question in the the Westminster uh, Shorter Confession of Faith is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the chief end of man, is to glorify God and to enjoy this God forever. God's glory or his worth or the weight of who God is, is the central idea revealed right throughout scripture. The Bible is about God's glory. That's what the Bible is. It's the story of God's glory. And the wonderful part is that we who are disciples of Jesus, trusting in Christ, uh, following him in a disciplined way, we get to see that glory as revealed through Jesus, but we also get to experience that glory as well through his spirit indwelling with us and understanding the gospel message. We not only get to see, but we experience the glory of Christ in a partial way with his indwelling spirit living and dwelling in us. It's a story of God's glory. So far in 1 Samuel, we've seen, well, last week we saw the the failure and the rejection of Saul by God because of Saul's disobedience and his rebellion against God's commands. Uh, Saul just didn't want to follow what God was wanting to do. He went on his own way, so therefore God rejected him as king. Uh, But God's sovereign uh, sovereign plans and purposes are still on track, and he has another king that he's chosen now that will actually carry out the plans and purposes of God. This didn't take God by surprise. In God's sovereignty, he's ordained all of this to take place. The nation of Israel, still at this point in time also, is in a place of spiritual decline and apathy. There's a sense where they have sort of, you know, maybe a, a bit of a gust of wind sort of would raise their spirits in God, but they're really, for all intents and purposes, uh, they're in spiritual decline and spiritual apathy. God isn't truly treasured and worshipped amongst the Israelites. It's actually somewhat every man for himself still following on from the book of Judges. Saul is still the king, even though God's rejected him in this time, but he's a godless king. He's also a, got now developing a power-hungry attitude. And he's also in a fearful state of mind. If you had read through our pre-reading of 16 and 17, you would have seen the second part of 16, that he's now a depressive sort of person and he needs David to come every now and again to sort of play some music to soothe him down. This is part of uh, living a life uh, devoid of God. Today, though, in Samuel 16 and 17, we're going to see God uphold his glory through a demonstration of his sovereign power. This, what this will be, it'll be the glory of God that'll come to this sort of showdown of epic proportions as we get from the story here of David and Goliath. So here's where we're heading today. God will vindicate and uphold the honour of his great name against anybody and anything that would dare stand against him. That's what God will do. He will vindicate and uphold the honour of his great name against anybody and anything that would dare stand against him. 
Let's briefly step through the story here that helps us get to this point of showdown where God's actually going to make this really vivid display. Uh, Chapter 16, we see at the start there, Samuel is still mourning over um, Saul's failed kingship and rebelling against God. He's still actually grieving there, as Amelia read that for us before. But God basically says to Samuel, it's time to move on. We can't sort of sit here and cry over spilt milk. We actually need to move on for what the next purposes and plans are. I've got another king that I've chosen, Samuel. So let's forget about Saul and let's move on. Samuel's directed to go to Jesse in Bethlehem. And now secretly goes there, wary that Saul doesn't know what he's doing, because if Saul does know what he's doing, obviously Saul would want to kill uh, Samuel for doing that. This shows you the state of mind that Saul is now in. Samuel meets here with Jesse in Bethlehem and then asks to meet his sons at this special meal or feast that has been arranged. With the view that one of these sons, as God has directed him, is going to be the next appointed king, God's king for Israel. So... So Jesse brings the sons in and the first one that Samuel sees, he sees Eliab, the son of Jesse. He looks at him and not to stress the illustration too far, he's, he thinks that Eliab is Chris Hensworth and he surely must be the next king because he's big, he's bold, he's beautiful, he's got muscles on top of his muscles. Surely this must be the king. But God speaks to Samuel and says this very profound truth about who God is and what sets him apart from us. He says this in verses 6 and 7. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But look, the Lord stopped Samuel right there and says, no, 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 hang on, let me just tell you something. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. So he's a big guy. Don't look on that, he says to Samuel, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Isn't that just so true? Isn't that just so true? We look at what we can see from the external and think, oh, that's the one, that's the one. And we get mesmerised by it sometimes. We judge by these outward appearances. That's not the way God works. God looks and sees what's happening inside the heart. This will become very telling here as this story begins to unfold here in this sense. Uh, So Jesse brings another six sons sons here before Samuel. There's too many S's in this passage of scripture, right? Saul's and Samuel's and sons. He brings another six sons to Samuel and Samuel says, it's none of these. Do you have any more? You've brought six of them through, but uh, including Eliab, have you got any more? And Jesse goes, hmm. Well, yeah, we do have one, but we didn't bother to invite him. We just sort of left him out in the back paddock looking after the sheep. Samuel says, bring him in. I need to see see him. So in comes David, the youngest son, and here's what we're told about him in verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now to try and set a bit of context here, this is somewhat what's being said. David is the runt of the litter. He's the little guy. He's not the big Eliab who's got muscles on top of his muscles. He's very small. There's not much to him, although he does have a bit of a sparkle in his eyes and he's sort of a handsome-looking young fella. He's the runt of the litter. Well, then God tells Samuel, that's him. That's the one I've chosen to be the next king of Israel. Anoint him. So what does Samuel do? Well, he does. He steps forward and he anoints David before his family. It's only a very quiet anointing. It's just sort of within the family circles at this time because Saul can't know about this. 
And at that precise moment, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, rushes upon David, make sure I get the right name there, and prepares him and equips him and enables him for the task of being God's king from that day forward. Fast forward now to chapter 17 and we find ourselves once again here as we lead to this confrontation. Uh, The Philistines are facing off against Israel again. They've been doing it a lot of times through sin, but here it is, it's all happening again. The people of God are hard-pressed by the enemy, looking to crush them once again and to submit them to their rulership. So what does Jesse do? Well, the three older sons have gone to the battlefront, conscripted to go to the battle lines. Jesse sends David to the battle lines. Hey, just check on how your brothers are doing. Take them a bit of food and just bring back a report and tell me how things are going from the battlefront. Well, that now leads us to this confrontation here and sets the scene for what's taking place. So they're fighting the Philistines, and the Philistines have this uh, champion soldier called Goliath. Now, what's really important here is the writer of Samuel takes a lot of time here to describe Goliath. He just doesn't give him one line. He actually describes how big he is and the armour he's got on, and he goes through this whole picture here, trying to actually give us a picture of what's taking place. Now, he's not a small bloke. He's probably 2.7 metres tall. So I'm about 1.9 or something. So he's another, what, 80 centimetres on top of me. So of a standard house, he'd be sort of only that far from the ceiling. He's a big guy. He's a really big guy. And he, cav- he carries this sort of massive armoury. I'm, I'm not sure why he needs the armoury, but that's important too for what's going to happen. He carries this massive armoury all around him. And he's basically impregnable with, with all this armoury plus the physical size of this guy. He carries this spear. We're told about the spear because, again, the, the writer's trying to actually communicate something to us here about the big mismatch we're about to see. He carries this spear, just the head on the spear, so just the tip of the spear, it's like six kilograms. So it's like... A sack of potatoes? What's a, what's a sack of potatoes weigh, ladies? Five. Will someone give me six? <laughs> okay. It, it's like, you imagine hanging that out the front. That's just crazy sort of way. But this guy's so big, he, he can just hang on a spear and he's got this massive weight. That's just the tip of the spear. He's a big fella. And he knows it. He's a really big fella. So get the picture here. Israel is on one side of this valley. The Philistines are on the other side of, the, of this valley. And morning and evening, Goliath comes down to the middle ground of this this valley and he taunts Israel. He's got his mantra that he comes with every day. Come on. Come on, guys. Send down your best man and we'll fight it out. Select your best warrior. Send him down there. And whoever wins, well, then we'll serve the winner. Just send your best man down. Come on. Do what. Show us what you got. Comes down every day taunting them and taunting God at the very same time. And every time this happens, every time this happens, Saul and Israel's army recoils in fear and in panic. They are fear-struck. They can't move. And for 40 days this has happened. It hasn't happened once, one or two days. They've been growing in this fear and this anxiety for 40 days as this massive mountain of a man comes down and just rails at them and taunts them. They've got no answers. Their hearts are melting with fear. We see it there in verse 24. It says here, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that's Goliath, fled from him. They bolted. And they were much afraid. Not a little bit afraid, much afraid. 
David's at the battlefront. He's actually witnessed this Goliath come down and do his usual taunt for 40 days. He's been doing this. David's there, he's checking on the brothers, and he, even here's a picture of David. He gets there and his brother has a go at him, if you read the story. He says, what are you doing, David? Just get back to the sheep. So he's not sort of getting bolstered in his confidence here before what he's doing, but that's, that's the picture we're seeing here even in this battlefront. David asks about, well, what will happen for the person who can take down this champion Goliath? Saul hears about, okay, bring you to Saul. And all of a sudden Saul says, you want to do it? Okay. So they go, let's suit up David. So they put the king's armour on David. Maybe that's going to be some sort of show. But Saul's a big guy, as we saw a few weeks ago. David's a little guy. That doesn't fit. Okay, so he's not even going to wear the armour. He basically says, it's not happening, lads. I'm not wearing this. I'm just going to have to go as it is. So David walks out to this battle here with Goliath and all he's got is his shepherd's staff that he carries with him and he goes down via the, the, the brook or the creek that's running through the bottom there and picks a few smooth stones out of that, puts that in his pouch and he's got his sling with him as well. Can you begin to see the picture that's forming here in this absolute total mismatch? Here is this massive guy trained for combat and here is this little shepherd boy who's got nothing really going for him at all. You might see that picture, but there's a bigger story actually taking place around that, other than what you can physically see. There's a bigger story taking place. And the bigger picture here is that the honour and the glory of God are at stake in this sort of confrontation. They are big stakes. Have a look with me in verse 43, and we'll begin to see this come, uh, come to light for us. And the Philistine, that's Goliath, said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Pretty cocky, confident sort of a guy, isn't he? I guess you would be at that size. But what's he doing? He's making much of his gods. What did he do? He cursed David by his gods, probably Dagon, as we saw that back a few weeks ago in Samuel as well. By my gods, by Dagon, I'll make a meal of your body and I'll feed it to the birds and the beasts of the fields. By the gods that we serve in Philistine. Then David replies in verse 45 and says this, You come to me with a sword and with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David's beginning to see it here. He's picking up what's taking place. Here's what you're doing, Goliath. You're not defying the armies of Israel. You're defying the God of Israel. You're making a mockery of the God. You are taunting and making a mockery and you're ridiculing the God of Israel, Goliath. That's what you're doing. This is way bigger than what you think it is. You just think it's an earthly battle here or just a human battle. It's way bigger than that, Goliath. And that is the true showdown that's taking place here. It's the false gods of this world making a mockery of the one true God, the Lord God Almighty. And what's God doing? He's ordaining here through this total mismatch, this little whippersnapper of a runt who's taking on somebody with a few sticks and stones, taking on this guy who's 
2.7 metres tall. He's an SAS sort of trained commando for Mortal Kombat. It's a total mismatch. But God's doing something and he's about to actually make a statement for all the world to know in this mismatch. Have a look in verse 46 and he says this. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Comma. What's it say next? That all the earth may know that there is a God of Israel. The commas are really important in the Bible. You've got to stop there and see what the next phrase is saying to us. That all the earth may know what? Not just the battle here today in um, this valley. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and he will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. He will not be taunted. He will not be ridiculed. He will not be treated with contempt. That all the world may know this. Not just the people in this valley. We're seeing that today. And we weren't in that valley. But we're seeing that today. Here's what, the, here's what the, all the world will see when it comes to God upholding the honour of his great and glorious name. Look in verse 47. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and, uh, sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. The Lord defends the honour of his name, not with a sword or spear. God doesn't need a sword or a spear to defend the honour of his name. God can simply speak and it happens. The Lord will shame this world by taking the weak and insignificant things of this world, like a little runt like David, the one who was left out of the meal right back at the start, to defeat this giant. God's going to let the world know that he saves his people. He defends his people while he defends and upholds his glorious name. All the world's going to see this. They're going to know this. See, this is the true confrontation that is taking place here in this valley. It is David and Goliath, but there's this bigger confrontation that's taking place here. God's honour and God's glory are at stake in this battle. This has always been the way of the world that we live in. There's a sense here where the powerful will try and take advantage over the weak. It just happens. We can easily use our power to abuse others who are weak and then only to bolster our position up so we sort of squash down others so we can elevate ourselves. That's just what takes place. It's the powerful overcoming the weak to keep raising the powerful higher and higher. Whether it be corrupt governments or authorities ruling in such a way that they shore up their position of power by marginalising the weak. That happens. Or it can simply be the powerful in life like big tech who use their social media clout to sort of squash out all the little voices that they don't want heard. The powerful suppress the weak. Well, what does David do? He places a stone into his sling and he lets rip. He lets it go. He hits the one spot left unprotected on Goliath's forehead. This stone smashes into his skull and kills him instantly. And what does David do? He goes up to, the de- to dead Goliath, pulls out the sword and cuts off his head. 
not a G-writer book, the Bible, is it, sometimes? That's what he does. And that's very symbolic, though. Because if you go back um, a few chapters earlier, you would have seen when the Philistines captured the ark, that they brought the ark into the temple. And what happened to Dagon? He fell over. And what happened the next day when he fell over? His head snapped off. Well, it's like nearly a reoccurrence again. You think Dagon's got power? No, we can just cut the head off, just like that. God holds all power. And the gods or the powers of this world are no match for the one true God is what we're seeing there. What a powerful demonstration of God. Can you imagine being there and, and witnessing that and seeing what's taking place there? Galatians 6 here tells us, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. He won't be mocked. He will uphold his glory. I'm just thinking of Saul and the army watching on that day and they've been doing it for the last 40 days, watching what's going on, where Saul has rejected God and he's been looking on in fear for 40 days of this Goliath and he's got no answers. How the heck are we going to deal with this, guys? They've got no answers every day. He's taunting the one true God, but here's the one thing Saul hasn't got. He's got no conviction, as it were, to hold up for the honour of God or the glory of God. Saul's at a total loss. No answers for this. But yet he sees this vivid demonstration there. Okay, that's the story. That's a, it's, a, it's a big story as well. But what do we do to sort of see today as we think about this narrative? God does uphold his glory and defend that. Absolutely. And that's primarily what we should see there. But we also should see this. We should not get fooled here by the power and the prestige of this world that so easily, as I said before, can mesmerise us on outward appearances like they've got the answers, they've got the pathway to life. It's so easy to just get caught up in this sort of this, whoa, you just blew me away with your sort of intellect or your power. It's not that. Because that's not how God works. In his own purposes, God chooses people who we may not choose naturally in certain circumstances, to carry out his purposes. We wouldn't. That's not the person I'd choose, God. That's precisely what God has done with David. It appears that Jesse thought so little of David at that particular time, he didn't even invite him along to be part of this meal with Samuel. Now, now maybe Jesse said, oh, look, he's pretty young. Okay, maybe you just you keep doing the sheep. But no, sometimes God will just choose things that just don't look like the likely choice in God's purposes. But also note here what God does when he did um, uh, choose uh, David. Those who he chooses, he also equips. So God didn't leave David floundering here as the anointed, sort of secretly anointed at this time. But he says there in chapter 16 that God filled him with his Holy Spirit, equipped him and enabled him now for the task to be carried out to do these things for the glory of God. That is the remarkable gift of God's grace. Those whom he chooses and calls... He fills with his power. And every single believer who's um, following Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit, enabled to live a holy life to bring glory to God. God does that. We see that there. God saves his people who cannot save themselves. Israel, again, is in a hopeless position. They've been there quite a few times through the book of Samuel, completely outnumbered and completely outgunned. What could they do? They were trapped in fear and without hope. That's where they were for 40 days. Fearful. They, they couldn't see any way out of this. What does God do? In his grace, he again steps in to defend the weak, the helpless and the hopeless. That's what God does. Those particularly who come humbly before him, he comes and he defends them. 
That's called grace. Now often we look at this story as well, and the main feature you may have heard, possibly in the past from kids' church or something like that, it's all about the courage and the bravery of David we're meant to see here. Well, we're not going to neglect that, but that's not the main thing that's happening in the story. We just show there that the main thing was the glory of God was on, was on the line. But when Saul and his army were shaking in their boots, we didn't actually see David doing that, did we? If you read through that, you would see David came down there with conviction. David came down there with resolve. David came down there believing something differently than what Saul and the rest of the army were believing. Now that, when we see that, that should capture our hearts. There's something there when we see the conviction and the resolve of somebody who's willing to go against all odds, that should begin to stir us a bit when we see that. He's the runt of the litter, but he's going to take on this giant. That should stir us. Does it stir you when you you read that? Does 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 it do something inside of you? think, he actually had some resolve, he had some conviction there. Do we believe that the Lord is the one true God who does deserve all glory and honour? And does that do something within us when we see evil or sin abounding? Does that conviction there of the Lord of glory being sovereign and supreme, does that do something in our hearts to build resolve? See, when we see men and women of gospel courage like that who are prepared to risk their lives for Jesus and his glory, it should do something within us to stir us, to help us, enable us to rise up just like they have. You see, that's what David did. He had this resolve here. In a sense, he went out and risked his life against all odds from a worldly perspective. When you see the two of them like they were, I'm sure everybody on Israel's side, as they watched him walk down that valley to meet the giant, who they've been looking at for the last 40 days, they're thinking, oh, this is the walk of death. That's where he's going. That's what I'm sure Israel were thinking that. David wasn't thinking that. David trusted God and he wouldn't stand idle, controlled by the fears and anxieties of this world. He actually walked out on that faith, that trust, to defend the glory of God with whatever he could do at that particular time. And what did he experience as he put his trust in God at that particular time? Well, God was there. God was there to provide that strength and resolve required for David to walk down that valley and face that giant. I imagine those steps wouldn't have been easy. The closer you get to him, the bigger he seems to be. But he kept stepping forward. David forgot about himself. But he remained fully confident in the Lord, come whatever, because David didn't know what the outcome was going to be. He was confident that the Lord would take him out and uh, enable him to take him out, but Now, it can be challenging to live faithfully at times, really challenging, because challenges do look like giants at times, and they do look big. And everything within you sometimes wants to look for the path of avoidance if you're given a choice. Will I take the easy path, or will I take the path that defends God's glory? Sometimes we want to take the easy path. It's hard to live faithfully and obediently before the Lord. But... As we remain faithful before him, he makes everything available to us that we need to stand strong. What does Philippians 4.13 tell us? It tells us we can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. In other words, what the Lord puts before us, as we are faithful to him and living for him, 
He will provide all that I need to get through that. So if I've got to face something on behalf of the Lord, he will enable and provide what I need to get through for his glory. You see, the path of faithful obedience leads to that blessing of seeing God equipping us and enabling us to live for his glory. He doesn't leave us floundering. When we walk out faithfully and obediently before the Lord, he meets us with precisely what we need. He gives us the strength and the peace for whatever we may be going through and enables us to get through that. This is what God desires to build into our lives, this this resolve and this conviction to live for his glory, whatever the challenge may be. And if we follow David through, we actually see that he leads us to a greater David, the ultimate David. Not with the name David, but the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You see, David in the Lord's plan that day did save Israel, but that was only for that day. Because the Philistines would come back again, and they would battle again, and they would battle again a number of times. They would be harassed and again oppressed somewhere again down, by the, uh, down the track by the Philistines again. But different for the greater David and Jesus. Jesus has saved us for eternity. He has saved us from our greatest Goliath, which is sin and death. Jesus has fought that battle for us, not with javelins, not with spears, by willingly laying down his life and taking on that enemy and defeating them for us. Now we will still feel the consequences of our sins on this earth and we will still feel the effects painfully at times, but the ultimate Goliath, our sin and death, has been defeated by Jesus on our behalf. So we can still face life with those consequences, with this glorious hope of the gospel and the presence of God's spirit filling our hearts with confident assurance that the greatest victory has been achieved for us already and that Christ is ours and he will never, ever leave us no matter what we're facing. So what is God? God is altogether glorious. He will not be mocked. He will vindicate his glory and ultimately all his enemies will be subdued. Now, I'm not sure what you're facing in life today. I just know if you took a a straw poll, everybody's in a different spot. Some are cruising through a week and others are facing big challenges. So I'm not sure what you're facing today. Some of you I'm aware of, but all of you I'm not. How do you deal with what you're facing today? Ask yourself this. What's it look like for God to be glorified in this situation that I'm facing? So in other words, how can I conduct myself today in the challenge or whatever it is? How can I carry my life forward today and glorify God in that? What do I need to do? What do I need to say? How do I need to react? How do I need to actually sometimes say nothing? Ask yourself that question with what you're doing today. And be assured in this, that whatever you have to go through, no matter how hard, how challenging, how painful that be, if you remain in faithful obedience before the Lord, he will supply whatever you need as you live for his glory and he will enable you to get through to the other side of that, doing it not only for his glory but for your spiritual good and growth at the same time as well. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you today that we can come and uh, open up your word. Father, we thank you for the David and Goliath story. God, I pray, please just help us today to, as it were, peel back some of the layers and see the biggest story that's taking place here. And the biggest story, Lord, is your glory was on the line, being defied by this world, being mocked by this world, being taunted at by this world. God, please help us to see that you're a God who will not be mocked, will not be taunted, will not be ridiculed. It may appear that way at times now, Lord, and that you're allowed to come through, but we know in your sovereign plans and purposes, Lord, you've appointed a day of judgment when all will be brought to light. Help us in the time period you've given to us, Lord, that we would be just like David, living for your glory, displaying your glory out through our lives, through our responses, out through our reactions. Help us today, Lord, to have an eye through every situation that we go to. What can I do here to respond in such a way that will glorify God? God, sometimes it'll be super hard for us because it may cost us something. Help us to know, Lord, that you've given us your spirit to enable us to have the strength required to do that, to make that hard choice. Help us to trust you as well, the Lord, as we do that, God, that you bless us with your peace and your strength, living for your glory and choosing the right pathway. And God, we pray that what flows out of that is that you are glorified and that we do endure you forever. And at the same time, Lord, your kingdom grows and expands here so others can be drawn into this glorious relationship that you've called us into. Help us today. Help us to live for your glory, we pray. We ask that we pray that now in your name, Jesus. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.